Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike Lecouture. Today, the feds push back against Alberta. The premier's choice uh, to bypass the legislature uh, in order to, uh, to uh, advance her agenda. The prime minister weighs in on Alberta's Sovereignty Act, saying Ottawa's not looking for a fight. But is Premier Daniel Smith gearing up for a battle with a bill that could override federal laws? We'll get the latest from Alberta and here in Ottawa. Then, Canada's stretched labor market. With nearly a million job vacancies and a rapidly retiring workforce, can the government keep up with the market? We'll ask the Labor Minister. Plus, Ontario's COVID-19 response under the spotlight. While I have a great deal of respect for the Auditor General, on this I cannot agree with her. The province's Auditor General finds major wastage of vaccines and PPE in the province's pandemic plan. We'll break it down with Ontario's AG a little later on in the show. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. We need uh, the power to reset the relationship with Ottawa. That's what this is all about. We've, we've tried different things in the past and it hasn't worked. So we've got to try something new. And I must tell you, I believe it's already working. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith believes it's time to stand up for her province. That's the goal of the newly tabled Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act. But just how tall is Alberta willing to stand? Well, fewer than 24 hours after tabling the bill, a clarification came out, giving more information about the powers cabinet would and wouldn't have over federal legislation. So what will the Sovereignty Act do? Well, it would give Cabinet the power to unilaterally amend existing legislation. But today, the Justice Department said changes to laws would be put to the Alberta legislature in the form of motions, not bills. The government wants to use it for motions they deem harmful to the province. It also is for issues they deem to be provincial. Those could be issues such as firearms, energy, and COVID-19 healthcare decisions. And just after the act was introduced last night, former Premier Jason Kenney resigned from the Alberta legislature. In a statement, he wrote, I'm concerned that our democratic life is veering away from ordinary prudential debate towards a polarization that undermines our bedrock institutions and principles. Kenney went on to say, from the far left, we see efforts to cancel our history, delegitimize our historically grounded institutions and customs, and divide society dangerously along identity lines. He went on to say, from the far right, we see vengeful anger and toxic cynicism, which often seek to tear things down rather than build up and improve our imperfect institutions. The Alberta NDP has come out against the act. Leader Rachel Notley says it's not normal to disagree with the importance of democracy. So how will the Alberta NDP fight against this act? And how do they respond to today's clarification from the government? Let's find out. And joining me now is Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. Thank you so much for making the time, Ms. Notley. I'm going to start right away by asking you about this clarification that we got today from the UCP government. 
In it, they say cabinet can't unilaterally amend legislation and that the legislature has to be involved in debating a motion. That's very different from debate over legislation. Are you satisfied with how much input opposition parties will be able to provide now? No, not at all. I mean, let me start by saying that uh, that clarification that came uh, from the Premier and the Minister of Justice, it actually contradicts what we were told in our briefing by the Deputy Minister of Justice. And quite frankly, it contradicts our own reading of the legislation. So uh, the Premier and her Justice Minister are either being incredibly incompetent or intentionally misleading. Um, so that is a concern. And, and the very uh, uh, feature of them conducting themselves that way adds yet more uh, um, uncertainty to the most undemocratic bill we have seen in Alberta's history on top of a bill that just even in principle um, is, is going to significantly jeopardize our economic growth and our economic stability. So we're very concerned about this bill and the more people see about see of it, the more worried they are. We just heard from the Calgary Chamber of Commerce today. After 24 hours, they are deeply concerned about what this is going to do for incoming investment and our ability to attract uh, or continue to attract um, smart, uh, you know, mm -hmm. talented uh, folks to, to work in our economy. Now, there isn't unanimous consent over this, even within the UCP caucus. Shortly after it was tabled, as we had just mentioned in the show, former Premier Jason Kenney resigned from his seat, saying that he's concerned that, quote, our, our democratic life is veering away from ordinary prudential debate towards a polarization that undermines our bedrock institutions and principles. What do you say to that, and what does it say to you? Well, there's no question. I mean, there is something to what, what he says, because, I mean, I've been in this legislature uh, since 2008, and I have seen uh, governments try to bring in these kinds of, you know, they're called King Henry VIII clauses, where they give themselves the ability to write legislation at the cabinet table without ever taking it to the assembly and, and into the light of democratic day. And uh, the only time that they've ever even tried to do it successfully, uh, or even then they had to withdraw it, was when it was in an emergency. So for a premier who, uh, who's been in power for, for three and a half weeks, who got elected by about 1% of the population, who's a mere six months away from a general election, to bring a, such a broad-ranging, uh, power-grabbing piece of legislation into the House really does bring into question her respect for the democratic institutions that uh, our, our country has, has uh, grown up on and relied upon for so many, many years. And, and it's about stability, it's about rule of law, and it's also about being able to, to attract uh, new folks, new investment to Alberta to help our economy recover. Uh, I got only one minute left, but yesterday we spoke to your um, finance critic, Shannon Phillips, who said your party will continue to focus on what's most important for Albertans. How realistically can you do that when precious legislature time will be taken up with this act? Well, I mean, we are certainly going to, as we're talking about this act, uh, talk about what could be done uh, to fix the economy that this act is undermining. And so we will be able to talk about that there. And then, of course, we always will continue to engage in, a, in, in as much of an urgent conversation about healthcare as we can. Today, we brought in an emergency motion to ask for an emergency debate uh, to talk about the fact that, that uh, kids uh, at Ch uh, Calgary Children's Hospital are being moved into trailers to, to wait 
in the ER. And uh, we're hoping that they'll agree to, to have that emergency debate because that's the thing that Albertans are actually most concerned about right now. So we're going to continue to push. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, uh, this just shows a government that, that is uh, out of touch with, with the, the concerns of, of Albertans. Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. Thank you. All right, so now let's bring in the federal government. Joining us right now is Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. Minister, thanks so much for taking the time. I wanted to ask you, the Alberta government wants to legislate on issues they deem to be within their jurisdiction. How will your government respond if they try to step on federal jurisdiction over natural resource development, for instance? Well, look, I mean, the way the Constitution is set up is there are areas of exclusive provincial jurisdiction. It's important that the federal government respect that. Um, there are areas of exclusive federal jurisdiction. It's important that the provinces respect that. Um, and then there are a number of areas where they overlap. One is in the area of the environment. The other is in, uh, in the whole area of economic progress. Um, and there, I think Canadians expect us to be working together. Ultimately, my focus is on finding ways to actually ensure that we can move forward in a manner that is going to build economic opportunity and prosperity for Albertans, just as it is for Saskatchewanians and British Columbians. Um, and so I think the focus on conflict is a bit misplaced. But I wanted to, I mean, you say, sorry, you say that the focus on conflict is a bit misplaced. Do you not expect conflict out of this? Well, I think the, the way, as I, I say, I, I used to be a constitutional negotiator for Saskatchewan, so I'm pretty familiar with the Constitution and how it works. The way, the way it works is there are areas that each of us has responsibilities for, and then there are areas in between where, you know, Canadians expect us to work together. The adjudicative mechanism, if you cannot find pathways to agree, is the courts. It's not one government or the other deciding in the other areas, area of jurisdiction. And, and that's, that's as it should be at times, like on carbon pricing and, and putting a price on, on carbon pollution. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they made the decision about whose jurisdiction it fell in. There's another case before the courts right now on environmental assessment. That's the final adjudicative mechanism. But I think what Canadians really want is us to focus on how we actually work together. And to be honest, how we work together on the issues that I think are the most important to them. I mean, if you ask Canadians, certainly my, my colleagues from Alberta, but even the recent poll that, that Jan Brown um, did in, in Alberta, I mean, I think people are really concerned about health care. They're really concerned about education. And they're really concerned about how we move forward in a manner that's going to promote economic prosperity for Albertans. And I think that's where we should be spending our time is figuring out how to work together to do that. And that's what the prime minister has said. He also said he doesn't want to fight the provinces. But is your government at all worried that Alberta is actually trying to draw you into a fight for political reasons here? Well, again, I, I would say having grown up in Western Canada and having worked for the province of Saskatchewan, I mean, there's always historically been challenges and, and issues that come up, particularly around natural resources. This is not new. This has happened all the way from Peter Lougheed and Alan Blakeney and others. Um, where, you know, the federal yeah, but government... With all due respect, Minister, this is new. With, with all due respect, this type of legislation is new, and so is what we're seeing in Saskatchewan in terms of trying to protect their natural resources. I mean, they're taking steps here that we haven't seen in the past. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that's entirely true. I mean, the, the, this came up very actively in the whole constitutional round that led to the patriation. But, but what I would say to you is the Constitution's very clear uh, in terms of what areas are properly the responsibility of the provinces. We respect that. But there are areas like uh, environmental protection that are appropriate for, uh, for the federal government and the province to be working together on those things. As I say, 
if there are, are concerns that Alberta has, we should sit down at a table and work our way through them. At the end of the day, if we can't work our way through them and find pathways to go forward, the courts are the appropriate uh, adjudicative mechanism. It's not one legislature deciding that they are going to intervene in, in another area, um, another jurisdiction, uh, legislature's jurisdiction. And so, you know, that's what the Constitution is set up to do. This is nothing new in terms of how we actually resolve disputes. So when you say you will leave it to the courts, is that a warning to Premier Smith that if she tries to step on your jurisdiction that you guys will see her in court? It's not a threat. I mean, my, my approach is to work collaboratively with problems. I was actually in Calgary just uh, just a couple of weeks ago meeting with Minister Guthrie, who is uh, Premier Smith's new energy minister, and it was a very collaborative and constructive conversation. My focus is on finding pathways to work together in a manner that advances the interests of all Albertans, just as it will advance the interests of all Canadians. Uh, my, 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 my mode of operation is never to threaten. All I'm saying to you is that the backstop that, that people can have comfort exists when there are disputes about jurisdiction that can't be resolved at the negotiating table is the court system. And we should all have confidence that our courts are an appropriate way to resolve those disputes if we cannot resolve them. But I think Canadians expect us to work to resolve them, not to sit in our corners and somehow think that that advances the interests of Canadians. It doesn't. And that's not what they elect us to do. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. We appreciate this. Thank you. To another big story that we're following today, Statistics Canada is giving us a better snapshot of Canada's workforce. New census data from 2021 reveals as more baby boomers near or enter retirement, Canada's labor force participation rate fell to 63.7% in 2021. Now that's down from 65.2% in 2016. Job vacancies peaked at 1 million in May 2022, and the figure is only slightly down since then. A record 1.3 million immigrants came to Canada from 2016 to 2021. They account for more than one quarter of the core age labor force. The unemployment gap between recent immigrants and non-immigrants is narrowing. When it comes to education levels, we're first in the G7. Canada has the largest percentage of college or university graduates in the workforce at 57%. Immigrants with a foreign degree are twice as likely to be overqualified in their jobs than Canadian-born or Canadian-educated degree holders. And the number of apprenticeship certificate holders has stagnated or fallen in key trades like construction, mechanic, and repair technologies. So with more baby boomers set to retire, what can the government do to replenish its aging workforce? And is boosting immigration enough? Let's get some answers with Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan. Thanks again for joining us, Minister O'Regan. I wanted to ask you, with a rapidly aging workforce, what is the government doing to prevent a major labour crisis? Uh, first of all, you, you want to take a step back and think about what we've been, you know, what we've been going through for the past two years, Mike. If you had told me that being, uh, you know, coming out of COVID or wherever we are right now with COVID, uh, that we would have one of the highest employment rates and lowest unemployment rates in Canadian history and a significant labor issue, I wouldn't have believed you, to put it mildly. Um, so it, it but it, that's not to take away from what, the, you know, the challenge that's before us. What do you do? You pull every lever that you can. First of all, you, you, you maximize workforce participation. And by that really is, you know, it, we're talking about inclusivity. Or, you know, when I'm talking to people about it, I just say, uh, you know, unless you're including everybody, you're not getting the best. 
So there are some factors within our workforce participation, particular areas. I'm thinking of like people, persons with disabilities, racialized Canadians. Uh, one that I'm particularly passionate about as a former minister of Indigenous services and somebody who grew up in the North is Indigenous participation. Um, how do we improve those areas? So they are significantly underemployed, and we, we, you know, we still need to change that. Uh, we got to invest in the next generation, and that's more of a, you know, I recognize kind of a medium and long-term play, but it's still really important, and that's tied to not only the money that we have dedicated towards apprenticeships, apprenticeship uh, service programs that we increased in the federal economic statement, but also really importantly, it's about student loan interest elimination. It's about giving people a leg up so they can continue to pursue their education. They can continue to get a, you know, a leg up. Uh, you know, thirdly, on immigration, that is hugely important. And, and you know, I've been working with ministers uh, Qualtrough and Fraser on that. How do we get, how do we recognize more people for the qualifications that they've earned abroad? And it's interesting because that's, that is, you know, very much a provincial and territorial jurisdiction. Uh, sometimes it's difficult not to crack, but where we found to have great effect is working with groups like Mosaic and Vancouver and saying, how can we do some fairly basic things to make sure that people are able to get through the exams that they have to take with local syndicates and associations, professional associations? How do we make sure their language training is up to snuff? How do we make sure that, you know, they're able to pass those exams? Um, so we're able to get in on that level and it's usually by working with some amazing, you know, smaller community based groups right across the country who are doing this kind of work. And then, you know, lastly, I would say like, how, and this is a you know major preoccupation for me as we go through a massive energy transition in this country, which is going to, you know, uh, be probably one of the most significant things we've ever faced as the fourth biggest producers of oil in the world. How, how do we lower emissions? How do we build up renewables? Workers are at the center of that and a significant part of the federal economic statement dealt with making sure that unions and union members and workers lead that energy transition. They're the ones who know where to tighten the, the screws to make sure that we you know, leak less methane and they're the ones who know how to put up the solar panels and everything else. So, you know, it's a four pronged strategy, um, you know, and, and it's something that, you know, I might have the moniker labor minister, but trust me, I think, you know, I'm not the only minister who's concerned about this by a long shot. And a lot of Canadians are too, as well. Minister of Labor, Seamus O'Regan, we appreciate you taking the time today and joining us and breaking it all down for us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Coming up, Ontario COVID-19 vaccine wastage. A new report spotlights the failure of the Ford government in preventing millions of COVID-19 vaccine from going to waste. So what went wrong? Ontario's Auditor General, Bonnie Lisk, joins us next here on PowerPlay. Why did the government not listen to public health experts during the vaccine rollout? The numbers show that we have done an incredible job protecting our most vulnerable through a vaccine rollout that is second to only Japan. Ontario's Auditor General released her annual report today, and one of her audits is shedding light on the amount of wasted COVID-19 vaccines in the province. In her annual report, Bonnie Lisk says the province wasted 38% of COVID-19 vaccine doses between February and June. Overall, vaccine wastage in the province is 9%. About half of that, she says, could have been avoided. Lisk also says 
Since people could book multiple appointments, that led to more than 220,000 no-shows in 2021, which likely contributed to vaccine wastage. So what went wrong with Ontario's vaccine rollout? Well, let's bring in the Auditor General herself, Bonnie Lisk. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to ask you, your report says the province overestimated the demand for COVID-19 boosters. Was that overestimation the main reason for these vaccines going to waste? Um, I would say that um, part of it was there, you know, it was unknown what the demand would be. So they did at the point when there were more vaccines, bring vaccines. They had a wide distribution system for those vaccines through pharmacies, through the mass vaccination clinics. And and I think it was just an overestimation of uh, how many vaccines would be needed. I mean, people, you know, decided to get the vaccines at various points in time. The pickup was very heavy at the beginning, you know, 82%. And then in terms of the second and then subsequent boosters, um, not so much. And so I think it was just a a bit of an overestimation in demand. It should be known the federal government was the purchaser of the vaccines. They were then sent to the province for distribution. You're also critical of Ontario's disorganized booking system. How do you think that contributed to some of that wastage? Yeah, because there were multiple booking systems, not just one central provincial booking system, uh, about 227,000 appointments were made that weren't filled. And so people were booking in various um, places. And so that did hold up perhaps others from getting a, a place for a vaccine sooner. One of the other things that you found is that the Ontario government spent around $13 million on partisan ads. What were these ads for and how did the government defend the use of these ads? Yeah, we, um, we are to be monitoring the ads. So we do get um, submissions and we look at them. And basically the submission was uh, more to, I would say, pat the government on the back. So we, we look at that. Um, we have to approve ads unless um, they have the color blue in them unless there is a voiceover by a minister or you know a member of the government and and if it doesn't have paid for by Ontario so we really have to approve pretty much every single ad but we do in our uh, report identify which ads we might have questioned a little bit more and it's those ones that are promoting uh, that one would interpret as promoting the government versus providing information people need to know Ontario Auditor General, Bonnie Lisk, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Now here's some other news you need to know. Two months after winning another big majority in Quebec, Premier Francois Legault returned to the province's National Assembly today, delivering his inaugural speech, which is Quebec's equivalent to a throne speech. The Premier focused on the same issues that he campaigned on addressing the decline of French in the province's largest city, Montreal, and economic expansion. A rare November snowstorm has blanketed much of Vancouver Island and B.C.'s south coast. 10 to 25 centimetres fell between Tuesday and Wednesday, causing power outages, traffic gridlock, and airport delays. B.C. Hydro says as many as 80,000 customers lost electricity at the height of the storm. Rising temps around Metro Vancouver are helping to melt some of the snow and helping crews clear vehicles that were stranded overnight. Parliament's upper chamber has voted to ask Governor General 
um, Mary Simon to remove the title of honorable from former Senator Don Meredith. Meredith resigned in 2017 over a sexual misconduct scandal. Just a month ago, Ottawa police charged him with sexual assault and criminal harassment. Official protocol says that senators have the title of honorable for life. But current sitting senators want Mary Simon to change that. Well, still to come, bipartisan support for same-sex marriage legislation in the United States. The U.S. Senate has passed a bill that ensures same-sex and interracial marriages are enshrined in federal law. We'll get the latest from Washington when Power Play returns. When the vote closed, the feeling on the floor was jubilation and relief. Not just for ourselves and our families, but for the millions of Americans across the country whose rights will be better protected under this bill. U.S. politics are deeply divided along partisan lines, with social issues becoming lightning rods. But yesterday, there was a rare moment of bipartisan cooperation. The U.S. Senate passed legislation to protect same-sex and interracial marriages. For the latest on this, let's bring in CTV News' Richard Madden, who joins us from Washington. Richard, tell us, how did this legislation come together? Yeah, you summed it up. This is a very divided political town. And when a bipartisan effort uh, is passed in the Senate, that is significant news. And that's what happened yesterday. Uh, More than a dozen Republicans voted in support of a Democratic motion that would protect same-sex marriage in the event the Supreme Court, the conservative-leaning Supreme Court, overturned those rights. But there's a bit of a caveat here. What this law does is it protects same-sex marriage from state to state should another state overturn it. Uh, But it also doesn't penalize either churches or businesses for refusing to perform a same-sex ceremony or or business venture there. So it just protects same-sex marriage uh, from one state to the other, but other issues still remain on the table should states decide to... uh, to ban same-sex marriage if the Supreme Court does overturn it. It's mostly a preemptive step uh, by Congress. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, though, uh, you know, what does this mean for bipartisan support for abortion rights? Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other that's a whole other issue. Uh, Joe Biden has promised that he would want to codify abortion rights uh, should the Democrats win Congress after the midterms. Obviously, that didn't happen. The Democrats have a razor thin majority in the Senate. The Republicans are going to control the House. This is what we call a lame duck session before the next Congress is sworn in in January. So uh, I cannot I'd be very surprised if abortion rights are codified as well. The same-sex marriage, interracial marriage uh, vote passed by the 60% by the 60-vote threshold. So that basically uh, prevents it or it stops it. It makes it filibuster-proof, so it can't be overturned. Uh, but an abortion, uh, protecting abortion rights, I think is uh, is a much steeper hill to climb. Uh, I, I suspect the Democrats are going to try to put that on the floor in the Senate uh, before the Congress is up in this session. But uh, whether that passes is unclear. As for that same-sex interracial marriage vote that did pass in the Senate, well, that has to go to the House floor. I suspect it's going to easily sail through there and it's signed on the president's desk. I suspect that will happen sometime next week. Richard Madden in our Washington Bureau. Thanks so much for this, Richard. You bet, bud. Coming up, clarifying the controversial act. The day after introducing the Alberta Sovereignty Within the United Canada Act, 
The UCP is explaining how it won't impede debate. Should we believe the Alberta government? And should we believe the Prime Minister when he says he's not looking for a fight with Alberta? We'll dig into that with the press gallery and our special guest, Nick Nanos. Power Play will be right back. The way Ottawa has treated the province, most especially Alberta, is unacceptable. Albertans are demanding action to restore a relationship that respects Alberta's sovereign areas of provincial jurisdiction as defined by the Constitution. Ottawa should butt out. That's the message being sent by Alberta Premier Danielle Smith with the Alberta Sovereignty Within the United Canada Act. But less than 24 hours after tabling the act, the Smith government is already clarifying how much power the act can actually give cabinet to amend legislation. A statement from the government says, quote, In no way does the Alberta sovereignty within the United Canada Act permit cabinet to unilaterally amend legislation without those amendments being first authorized by the legislative assembly, end quote. So does the act limit fulsome debate in the legislature? And will this reset Alberta's relationship with the federal government? Let's bring in the press gallery to dig into this one. Toronto Star's reporter Tom McCharles is joining us from Politico, Zian Lum. And from Nanos Research, we have Nick Nanos. Um, Nick, we're going to start with you. How does the rest of Canada view this act? Well, can I tell you something? Picking on the federal government is very good provincial politics. All the premiers Breaking like to news. do it. It's you know, Breaking news. So it's not surprising. In this particular case, I think they're doubling down. I think, you know, for a lot of Canadians, they're going to wait to see what happens. But will there be copycats? Like, what will the premier of Saskatchewan do? I think if this spreads beyond one province to another province, then we got a whole world of pain on mm-hmm. the federal-provincial relationship front. And I think for Canadians that are just worried about putting food on the table and paying the bills, the last thing they want is a constitutional crisis. Tana, I wanted to ask you about that, but also about the clarification that the Alberta government issued today. Do you think this put to rest any questions about cabinet's powers, or is it all still pretty murky? Well, is it a clarification, though? I mean, I think the, the, there's an attempt now to put well, they call it on one. a pig. It's lipstick on a pig. I mean, the the government, the Alberta government is claiming that the legislature will get its say. But really, it's before the fact that the ledge would get a say in that the the law requires them to put forward a resolution in the in the House of Assembly there. And then for that to be taken by cabinet to do as it pleases. So I think I think that, um, you know, in a certain respect, you know, we saw some restraint on behalf of federal politicians today reacting to it. But uh, I think that this is causing a lot of concern about just how it will be used. You, you heard uh, Jagmeet Singh raise in, the, uh, in Parliament today in the House of Commons the concern around would it be used um, to uh, run roughshod over the Health Care uh, Act, the Canada Health Act, and, and publicly paid for Medicare, Medicare uh, by a government who perhaps would want to see more pay, users pay for health care. Um, so I think there are many questions to be answered around just how the law gets applied in reality. And Zian, do you think that we have any clarity on the answers to some of those questions that Tonda was just talking about? No, we don't. (laughs) Um, This is a political play by the government to kind of pick a fight with Ottawa to kind of shore and rally UCP support ahead of the province's Mm -hmm. election in May, which is six months uh, 
yesterday, actually, to the day. Um, I'm not clear on what problem this bill specifically solves uh, without creating potentially new problems down the line. Um, those potential bigger problems down the line include maybe making the uh, investment environment a bit murkier in the province to lure big kind of like investments in uh oil and gas, mm -hmm. energy. Um, if the goal is to develop Alberta's natural resources here um, without the pesky kind of involvement of federal laws and regulations, then I'm not sure how this law brings in clarity without risking adding more confusion to kind of like the policy environment there. So obviously changing geopolitics in the world have made stable political, uh, economic environments more attractive to investors. And to kind of paraphrase a lyric from... Um, my shot, which is a hit single from the Broadway musical Hamilton, right. is Alberta kind of you know throwing away its shot here. And how is this going to bring new opportunities to the province that it otherwise would not get if this act was not in place? I'm not clear. I haven't heard an argument about that yet. You don't need to quote any Andrew Lloyd Webber here. Um, <laughs> no, sorry, that's a little Nick, too high for yeah, me. Yeah, I know, but I, I was going to say, I mean, politically, the, the prime minister is trying to stay above the fray here. Is that his only move? I think that is basically his only move. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that, oh, how about this? Maybe it's a brilliant ploy, like an opening salvo in renegotiating federation and renewing the federation. And, you know, and I think, you know, some Canadians might look positively on that, mm -hmm. because especially if you live in Western Canada, the top word and emotion that you associate with the government in Ottawa is anger. You're very angry at Ottawa. So... I think what this may lead to is a discussion about the Federation and whether it's working or not. That might be helpful. But the devil's in the detail and how they use this, right? And Zian's point, it could be very disruptive and counterproductive, not just for Alberta, but potentially for the country writ large. And let's hope it doesn't turn into Les Miserables, if nobody minds me dropping that one. Uh, I'm just going to shift gears for a second here. Uh, there's a clip that's making waves around the world. It was in a press conference with leaders of Finland and New Zealand. Have a listen to this, then we'll come back. A lot of people will be wondering, are you two meeting just because, you know, you're similar in age and, you know, got a lot of, you know, common stuff there, you know, when you got into politics and stuff, or can Kiwis actually expect to see more deals so between our two countries down the line? Because my there first, is, I mean... My first question is, I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they mm. were of similar age. Uh, we, of course, uh, have... Uh, a higher proportion of men in politics, it, it's reality because two women meet. It's not simply because of the agenda. Mm. Yeah, we are meeting because we are prime ministers. <laughs> so that was Jacinda Ardern in Santa Marin having to explain why the two leaders would meet. Tonda, I wanted to just throw this one at you first. What do you make of that? I mean, you and I have both been in those sort of bilateral meetings and coming up with questions. Um, not exactly the strongest question, I guess. No. What do you want me to say to that? I mean, that's a ridiculous question on a ridiculous premise. And, you know, what did he think that the girls up at the podium were going to talk about girls running the world or something like what on earth is that all about? Anyway, it's 2022. Can we get on with it? Yeah, I know. I know. And <laughs> Zian, in Canada, we like to think ourselves as, as progressive. Do you think we're immune to that kind of thing here? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, we've seen those, heard those questions sometimes pop up from other outlets, different outlets. Um, but there is an upshot to this. I, I do know that there's no such thing as a bad question, but this one kind of is a bad question. Yeah. Um, but the upshot is, you know, it's actually making us talk about why this is a bad question. Maybe we shouldn't hear this anymore. Yeah, no, for sure. And Nick, I want to bring you in on this. I mean, like, 
you know, there, there's a lot of ways to ask a question as to yeah. how the two countries have links. I mean, one would think Finland, New Zealand, you know, what's the trade about? Uh, and, you know, Jacinda Ardern went into the trade yeah. figures afterwards. But certainly, there's got to be a different if, way. If I can just put this on the tab- table. Ridiculous, bad. I'd like to say stupid. It's basically a stupid question. It would take a stupid person to ask a stupid question like this. It should never have been asked. That's like saying that I'm on the show because, Mike, we both have ties. Don't we have a lot in common? It's just ridiculous. And, uh, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, is I think I'd like, if we were trying to be nice, we could say maybe the person before him asked the question that he wanted to ask and he had nothing to say. But uh, the reality is, is that this, these types of questions shouldn't really be asked when there are really big issues on the economy, on the environment, on healthcare that that people from around the world want to hear about. I appreciate that. And we did want to highlight that because, again, these are the types of things that unfortunately are still happening um, and something that unfortunately happened again. So, Nick, we appreciate you being on the panel. Zian and Tonda are going to be sticking around for a deep dive that we're going to be taking on the census. New numbers from Statistics Canada show that we leave the G7 with the most educated workforce. However, educated immigrants face underemployment in this country. So what can be done to fix it? The PowerPlay Press Gallery will return right after this. Canada's labour force is ageing. Statistics Canada released new census data from 2021 that reveals Canada's labour force participation rate fell to 63.7% in 2021. That's thanks in part to baby boomers retiring. Now, job vacancies peaked at 1 million in May of 2022, and that figure is only slightly down since then. Immigrants account for more than one quarter of the core age labor force. And the unemployment gap between recent immigrants and non-immigrants is narrowing. So with job vacancies already at all-time highs and more and more boomers set to exit the workforce, is Canada prepared for a major labor force crisis? Let's bring back the press gallery, Toronto Star's Tonda McCharles, Politico's Zian Lum, and our special guest is Perrin Beatty, the CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Thank you all for being here. Perrin, we're going to start with you. We're already seeing a really tight labor market right now. How hard has it been for businesses to recruit workers and fill the current vacancies? Incredibly hard. The Canadian Survey of Business Conditions shows that after rising costs, the single greatest obstacle that businesses find today is the ability to get their hands on the people that they need. And of course, that's driving up costs in itself. So it's a, a major problem. Now, parent, Canada is seeking to boost immigration levels. Do you think that's going to be enough to sustain our workforce? It, not in itself. I think what's important for us is to take a holistic approach. We have to look at how we increase participation in the workforce here at home. For example, one of the areas in which we're doing very badly is among Indigenous Canadians. We could be doing much more. We could be looking at keeping seniors in the workforce longer or bringing them back in. And immigration is a factor as well. The The challenge with simply looking to immigration is that there is a lag time in bringing people in and they uh, uh, tend to be underemployed once they get here. But there's also issues related to where will they find a doctor or where will they be able to find a place to live because we're not building houses at the rate at which immigration is taking place today. So immigration has an important role to play. 
But if we put all of our eggs in that basket, uh, it will be very difficult. Tonda, we knew the baby boomers were going to retire. So should Canada have been better prepared for this demographic shift? Look, I think that uh, all governments have been warning about this coming uh, ever since Stephen Harper tried to raise the uh, age of eligibility for old age security, right? He saw the coming demographic wave. We've known about it for decades. But I think um, Perrin Beatty raises a bunch of interesting issues around all of that. And, and I just add to it um, that politically for governments and opposition parties also thinking about how to approach this, there's there's another challenge. It's It's not just the where do you house them? How do you provide the health care for them? But there's an integration more broadly speaking into Canadian society, be it through recognizing the foreign credentials of immigrants, uh, education, uh, making sure that those playing fields are leveled. And also we're seeing polls that suggest that Canadians are, are, are worried about the, the level at which the government is setting targets for immigration. I mean, they've set a target of 500,000 a few weeks ago for the coming year. Um, a much larger number than has previously been the case over the past number of decades. And so I think that Canadians, you know, faced with the economic challenges they face, are wondering, you know, how is this going to work? How are, where are these people going to uh, fit in? How, how is the government uh, going to aid them to integrate into Canadian society? So I think that's a huge political challenge for governments at both provincial and federal levels. Zian, is Canada in a tough spot trying to compete with other developed countries for highly skilled immigrants? Yes, absolutely. It's like a big competitive uh, market for people all over the world to get Mm -hmm. top skilled immigrants, right? And that's been the case for decades. Uh, When I read this report, um, I think what really struck out to me was like, oh, you know, this is uh, surely a big wake-up call for governments of all levels to kind of work together with community groups to kind of uh, address and eliminate some of the BS and barriers that a lot of immigrants face when they arrive in Canada. And, you know, you just look at the demographics itself, like the political and humane incentive is there in our changing demographics. Uh, In Ontario and British Columbia, a third of the core age labor force is uh, immigrants, and that's people between the ages of 25 and 54. And in Toronto, it's 52%. And in Vancouver, it's 46%. Now, those are like amazing statistics to kind of spur some changes and conversations because rather than having this kind of rote, superficial immigration 1.0 conversation that we keep on having over and over again about needing more immigrants to come to Canada, um, you know, to parents' point, this kind of needs to be a more holistic conversation. And to Tonda's point, you know, uh, how are we going to better recognize education and credentials? Mm-hmm. And, you know, how can we uh, help immigrants access health care and uh, social services to ensure that, you know, Canada's future prosperity isn't built on the backs of uh, immigrants who have unfair opportunities for advancement? Yeah, and Perrin, um, to that point, I mean, StatsCan also found that Immigrants with foreign degrees are twice as likely to be overqualified than a Canadian-born or Canadian-educated worker. Are we not tapping into that potential of foreign-educated immigrants enough? What we're doing is certainly leaving skills on the table. We're bringing people in and then underemploying them after they're here, in part because we don't recognize their credentials sufficiently and because there's been a, a traditional lag in terms of in terms of pay scales and in terms of uh, job job levels uh, for immigrants in Canada. StatsCan finds that that is not as bad as it used to be, but there is still a premium that immigrants are paying in Canada in coming and joining the workforce here, and we need to close that gap. 
And Tonda, in terms of closing that gap, I mean, we're in the middle right now uh, of, you know, a healthcare crisis as well, where we're talking about needing nurses and doctors. Is there not something to be done there with foreign trained doctors and nurses? But it's the age old question of, and like we've just been discussing, you know, bringing people in who are highly skilled, who have other choices of other countries to go to where they have faced the same healthcare shortages of a skilled workforce to, to bring them in and to quickly recognize their ability to work within our system. You know, there are any number of times you can jump in a cab in Ottawa or Toronto or downtown Vancouver and a doctor or an engineer or, you know, a, a professional is driving the taxi because they have struggled and not been able to be recognized by in some cases it's a provincially regulated profession but in other cases you know both levels of government have been talking for so long about how to fix this problem and yet nothing does get fixed so uh you know yeah, yeah. we'll see we'll see more of this <laughs> yeah unfortunately in the end i mean canada has a highly educated workforce but given the cost of living housing as well, healthcare crisis and, and housing crisis. I mean, can we see this, you know, to Tonda's point and what we were saying as well, they have other choices. So can we see, um, you know, the government actually trying to make changes there to make sure that the conditions are better and more favorable and, and more attractive? such a complex issue because it's not just um, like Ottawa's kind of like responsibility to facilitate these conditions because a lot of immigrants go to the big cities mm -hmm. which have housing crises because there are communities there. So when you move abroad, you are attracted to, you know, your community and in, you know, rural areas in, in Canada, uh, that kind of um, familiar infrastructure uh, may not be there. So it may be kind of like a more, um, you know, you need to put more effort into kind of building your community there. So it's, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg kind of situation, and it's not really incumbent just on uh, Ottawa to kind of like fix this kind of issue that needs provincial and municipal involvement as well, also community. Yeah, Perrin, I've just got a minute left. So what can be done to have this more holistic effort? And because clearly everybody says we need it, so why isn't it getting worked on? First, uh, we can't put all of our eggs in the one basket. Uh, immigration is an important part of closing the skills gap. We also need to look at what do we do with people who are here already? How do we upgrade their skills training? How do we ensure that persons with disabilities are able to find work? How do we draw seniors back into the workforce? How do we improve technology that improves uh, productivity in Canada? And with immigration, how can we ensure that that people are fully integrated into Canada and are able to participate fully in our economy, that there's a place for them to live, that there's medical assistance, that it's possible for them to get good jobs that fully use their skills. All of us have to work together on that. There is no quick fix. No quick fix and certainly uh, one that governments continue to look at. Perrin Beatty, Zian Lum, and Tonda McCharles, thank you all so much for discussing this and I'm sure we'll be back discussing it again sometime. Well, that is your Power Play Day in Politics. Thank you all for spending your time with us. We will be back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night, everyone.